Now tonight in Genesis, we've got a big section of the narrative to get our heads around chapters 43 to 45. And as we get into it, you'll understand why we need to take such a large section. Rather though than read it all through and then talk about it, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to read a bit, then reflect on it, and progressing through the narrative that way will A, keep us awake, I hope, and B, allow the text of Scripture to impact us. One thing we must never discount is the, the power of reading Scripture well. It is a deeply moving account of what happened and written in a deeply moving way. And Sam will read chunks of it tonight as we go through. But as you turn up to Genesis chapter uh, 43, you'll find that on page 36 in the Church Bibles. You'll see on the back of the service sheets uh, just a few notes to navigate us into this part of the story. Numbers of you, I think, are uh, maybe here in the series for the first time tonight or catching up, so it's good for us to do that. Let me go at 100 miles an hour, uh, 100 miles an hour the story so far. Uh, Genesis chapters 37 to 50 is part of the story of the people of God. It's part of the story of how God saves his people. The people of God is the focus here, and the particular people are the sons of Jacob, or the sons of Israel, as their father is also called. The sons of Israel, or Jacob, would become the head of the twelve tribes of Israel. They had a special place in God's plan. And while Genesis 37 and 50 is headed up that way and is a story about the people of God and how God saves them, the central character in the story is Joseph, one of the brothers. Joseph is God's chosen man, whom all people, including his own brothers, will bow before as their Savior and Lord. And Genesis 37 is the story of how all that happened. These events foreshadow the Lord Jesus Christ the man supremely exalted by God, before whom we are to bow as Saviour and Lord. Chapters 37 to 41 cover a period of uh, more than 10 years. Chapter 37, Joseph, the youngest son, aged in his mid to late teens, has dreams that his brothers and family would bow down to him. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery. Joseph's brothers lie to their father, telling him that Joseph has been killed by wild animals. They take him the shredded coat of many colors, covered in one new color, blood. The chapter ends with a comment that Joseph is sold to Potiphar in Egypt. Chapter 38, Judah's terrible messed up life. It's a shocking chapter, yet in the end, Judah has an heir. Chapter 39, God was with Joseph as he rises to prominence in Potiphar's house. Joseph flees temptation from Potiphar's wife, falsely accused. Joseph is imprisoned. God was with Joseph, and he rises to prominence in prison. Chapter 40, Joseph interprets two dreams in prison, the cupbearer and the baker, the dreams come true, but the cupbearer who promised to speak on Joseph's behalf to Pharaoh does nothing to secure his release. Joseph remains in prison 
for two more years. Chapter 41, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams about preparing for the famine that will strike the earth. There will be seven good years where grain should be stored, followed by seven years of famine on the earth where that stored grain will be provided for the people. Pharaoh is pleased and Joseph rises to a prominent position over the whole land of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. God is with jo Joseph. God was with Joseph all through his life, through the sweet and the bitter providences. Now, there is a key, key lesson from this book. When the sweet providences come into our lives, we do not think consciously that God is with us because perhaps we don't need Him. When the bitter providences come into our lives, we sometimes think that God cannot be with us. He is always with us. Everything Joseph said came true. Verse uh, chapter 41, there were seven years of plenty and the food was stored. Then famine struck the earth and everyone went to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain. Chapter 42, Jacob sends his sons, Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to buy grain. All but Benjamin, who is now the youngest son. Jacob had already lost his youngest son, Joseph, when Joseph was 16 or 17, Benjamin, born after that, would now be 16 or 17. Jacob was not going to lose his youngest son again. The ten brothers came to Egypt to bow before Joseph. And they did, 20 years since they sold him into slavery. They did not recognize him. How would they? But he recognized them. Joseph remembers the dreams that they would bow down to him. He accuses them of being spies and protesting their innocence. They said to him, we your servants, why did they say this? We your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is dead. Imagine how Joseph would have reacted to that. But his response to them publicly, prove your innocence by sending one of you to bring your youngest brother to Egypt and their hearts would have missed two beats. And then he put them in prison to think about it. They must have been long days and nights of heart searching in prison as God convicts them of their sin. And on the third day, two more surprises for the brothers. Joseph used the Hebrew name of God, Elohim. Why is this man speaking to us of our God? Do this, Joseph said, and you will live, for I fear God. Do what? Rather than send one brother back to Canaan to bring Benjamin, he sends them all back, except one Simeon, who will remain as a hostage in Egypt. This is a test for them. Would they abandon another brother? They'd abandoned Joseph, and he ended up in Egypt. Would they abandon another brother in Egypt? The stakes are high. The temptation is real. And this leads in chapter 42, as Johnny showed us last week, the brothers in Joseph's presence to a remarkable corporate confession of guilt. They don't think he understands what they're saying, but he does. All these years ago, they referred to Joseph as the dreamer. 
Now he is the boy, my brother. Joseph is so moved by this that he leaves them and weeps. He then binds Simeon before their eyes. Their bags are filled with grain. Unknown to them, Joseph has the money they had used to pay for the grain replaced in their bags, and they started on the journey back to Canaan. And when one of the brothers, stopping for water on the way back, discovers the money in his bags, they are deeply convicted of sin. And fearing the Lord, they say, what has God done to us? They return home to their father and tell him what has happened. Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go for two whole years. Now, the story continues. Chapter 43, maybe two years have passed. And Sam is going to read chapter 43 down to verse 15. Thank you. Let's read. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him... We will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Thank you, Sam. Now the narrative continues and the famine has not gone. They've run out of food again. 
Jacob tells his sons to go to Egypt again to buy food in Judah. It's striking, isn't it? And we'll see this more in this narrative. Judah, the Judah of 38, chapter 38, steps into the breach. Judah steps in and persuades Jacob that they cannot go back without Benjamin. And Jacob said, why did you tell them there were 12 of you? Why did he ask about if you had a younger brother? Judah persuades Jacob that unless they go back with Benjamin, they will starve. And so Jacob reluctantly agreed. He had no choice. They needed food. The only place they could get food was in Egypt. It is almost as if God is constraining the circumstances that they had no choice, which is exactly what he's doing. Jacob sends gifts to the ruler of Egypt. He doesn't know it, but he's sending gifts to his son. Now, the text here is full of rich details. We could spend hours and hours on this. A little detail, verse 11. What a strange verse to include. Apart from the the authenticity of an eyewitness account. What a strange verse, though, in the Bible. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts and almonds. It's like Waitrose. Back in chapter 37, but you didn't remember this detail, the Ishmaelites that they sold Joseph were carrying gum and balm and myrrh into Egypt. This is no coincidence, it is divine providence. They had to take, moreover, double the money. Money for the new grain they were to buy, and the money they paid for the grain first time round, which had been returned to them. Even that pricked their conscience. What had happened? Was it an oversight? And Jacob, Israel's prayer as they leave is moving and powerful. May God Almighty grant you mercy before this man. And may he send back your own brother and Benjamin. As for me, I am bereaved of my children. I am bereaved. What is he saying in his prayer? Have mercy upon us with no expectation that that prayer will be answered. And so they leave for Egypt And Sam will read the next bit for us. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. 
Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they had heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well, and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the younger according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. Now when Joseph saw that Benjamin had returned with them, he instructs his steward to invite them to his house to eat with him. And the brothers, of course, are afraid. Why is Joseph inviting them to dine with him? Thinking it was because of the money, they go to the steward protesting their innocence. Genuinely, we do not know who put the money in our sacks. The steward's response is both unexpected and gracious. Peace, shalom. Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then Simeon is released to them, and together they await the arrival of Joseph. Remember, they have no idea it is Joseph. Joseph knows it is them. Joseph arrives at noon. The brothers present their gifts to him and bow down before him. We have one of the most beautiful scenes in this whole account. His kindness, his compassion to them, his inquiry about his father. Is he still alive? And then his eyes rest on Benjamin. And his words, God be gracious to you, my son. These are the same words in the ironic benediction in Numbers 6.25. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you. Joseph is overwhelmed with compassion, leaves them and weeps alone. Having composed himself, he returns and they feast together. They ate in separate groups, an incidental detail, a factually accurate detail. Joseph alone is the social superior, the Egyptians by themselves because of religious scruples, and then the brothers. And of course, the irony, Joseph hosted a meal for his brothers, 
who years earlier had sat down to a meal while he sat alone in a pit. Moreover, Joseph sat them in order according to age. That must have unnerved them. And portions were taken from Joseph's table, five times as much for the youngest son. Joseph wanted to see what they would do with such an expression of favoritism. And there is no hint of jealousy from his brothers. The feasting went on perhaps into evening and the night, but morning was coming. And with the morning, a test over Benjamin that would test their mettle. The day of mercy was a beautiful beginning, but there was a day of severer mercy that would dawn, that would lead them to saving faith. Chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now this is the test that will show if the brothers had genuinely come to repent of their sin and be forgiven. 
And what Joseph does is reconstruct the circumstances, the temptation to which the brothers succumbed when they sold him into slavery. Joseph orders their sacks to be filled with food and the money they had brought. And in Benjamin's sack, this young boy, he puts his silver cup. Remember, they had sold Joseph for silver. The brothers leave for Canaan. Joseph's men come after them and accuse them of stealing. The punishment for the guilty person, they will become a slave in Egypt. The rest will go free. Sack after sack is searched. And it's found in Benjamin's. The youngest son will become a slave in Egypt. And the reaction of the brothers is striking. There are no words. They simply tear their clothes in anguish. Twenty years before, they had torn Joseph's clothes off him. Now they tear their own, convicted of their sin. Would they surrender Benjamin? Would they leave the youngest son as a slave in Egypt for their own lives? Would history repeat itself? So they returned to Joseph's house weeping, the house from which they had just left rejoicing. And bowing before Joseph, he indicts them, and there is nothing they can do, and there is nothing they can say. And therein is an anatomy of the gospel. Before the one before whom we will all bow, in the end of the day, there is nothing we can say. We're undone by guilt before we are undone by mercy. You cannot be undone by mercy until you are undone by guilt. God has found us out, Judah says. And Joseph heard it all with incredible restraint. And he tells them to go back to their father and leave Benjamin. He raises the stakes as high as he can. He will punish only Benjamin, the youngest son, the favorite son. And the conditions are perfect for a second betrayal. They abandoned Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Will they abandon Benjamin for their lives? And then remarkably, Judah steps forward. The Judah we read about in chapter 8, his dissolute and his shocking life. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And when we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age, his brother is dead. And he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. 
Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my grey hairs in evil to shale. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the grey hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shale. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Well, thank you, Sam. What an extraordinary transformation in Judah's life. He steps forward at great personal risk and asks Joseph if he can speak. Judah speaks with humility, under conviction of sin, repentant, seeking forgiveness. Listening to Judah, Joseph learns what happened 20 years before when they returned home to their father. The tears surely welling up in Joseph's eyes, if not his heart. The prospect of the terrible impact on Jacob if Benjamin did not return. And then Judah takes the words of his father's lament on his own lips. Judah's words recalled by Joseph, verse 29, If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil. Jacob's words, recalled by Judah, become Judah and his brother's words in verse 31. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants, we, will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow. The brothers had repented of their sin against Joseph. They had forgotten the unfair favoritism of their father. They so loved their father and his favorite son that they would not forsake Benjamin, even though the cost was immense. Judah's impassioned plea culminated in his request to substitute in Benjamin's place. Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. This is the dissolute Judah, 
whom God has spent 20 years bringing to this point in his life. Let me read just the first few verses of chapter 45. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to them, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve your life. And then it accounts all the events of the famine that had brought them to Egypt. Later on in verse 16, after Joseph had kissed all his brothers and wept upon them and buried his face into Benjamin's neck, it's very intimate and personal, Pharaoh doubles the blessing. And they go back to their father. And the very end of the chapter, Jacob says, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Now, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He forgives them. He comforts them. He tells them all that has happened is God's providence. He tells them to go and bring their father, the rest of their families, so he can provide for them. He embraces them. His generosity surpassed by Pharaoh's generosity. And then that lovely, sensible, real parting comment to Joseph, don't quarrel on the way back. In other words, don't say, actually, I had come to terms with my sin before you. Don't attribute blame Or, or don't rake up your guilt, because guilt is now gone. You need guilt to get mercy. But when you get mercy, guilt goes. Now, I hope you agree it's been useful to go through the chapters in that way. Don't worry, there's not a sermon to follow. Just one or two little reflections. I hope that's helped you stay awake. It's extraordinary narrative. It is a wonderful description in real life how God brings people to faith. What can we learn? Well, there is just so much we could learn. We could spend hours. I'm just a little bit tempted tonight to keep going. You know what, we mustn't do that, of course. We can't do that because you've all got stuff to do and we're awfully worried about the length of our sermons, but just occasionally, it would be good to spend two more hours. Two more hours understanding. And then you turn to the person next to you and you start to talk about the extraordinary providences of the last 20, 30, 40 years in your life. 
And then you think about that person on your heart who's not a believer in your family. And you see here it took 20 years. And your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad is not where Judah was in chapter 38. And we could talk about how God withheld his mercy from us. He withheld it that night in church when we were really captivated by the gospel, but we weren't truly repenting. He withheld it, and he withheld it, and he withheld it till we had nothing to say. And then he poured it out on our hearts. What can we learn, though, in five or ten minutes? Well, we can learn about God's providence in bringing his people to faith. Remember what Genesis 37 to 50 is about, how God saves his people. Yes, it is about how God exalts his Savior and his Lord, God's sovereignty, his providential purposes in bringing his chosen man through the line of suffering to the royal throne. We have seen how God was with Joseph through all the circumstances that led him to his exaltation. We can read in the Gospels how God was with Jesus through all the circumstances of sweet and bitter providences that led to his exaltation. And there was no more bitter day than when Jesus hung on a cross Yet this narrative has just as much to say to us about God's providence in bringing his people to saving faith. And right through these 20 long years, God's providential purposes and ways were being worked out in the lives of Joseph's brothers to lead them to saving faith. All the events described, now listen to this, are not ordered by God to prove a point. The purpose of this period of history was not for God to prove his sovereignty, that come what may, he would make these brothers bow down and beg for their lives. It all happened because God wanted to save them. Think of the providences the circumstances, the people, the events, sweet and bitter ones that brought you to saving faith in Jesus or are bringing you to saving faith in Jesus. It has taken a long time or it is taking a long time. And God is at work in your life in ways you can see, in ways you cannot see, in ways that retrospect even does not always allow you to see. And he's doing it not to prove a point, but to save you. Even in the darkest pits, Genesis 38, God was with Judah, working through the carnage of his life to save him working through the darkest valleys in our lives to save us. Now, if you are not there yet, maybe tonight you've had a glimpse of God's providence in your life. 
the very fact that you are listening to this, the very fact that you are sitting here, the circumstances, the sweet and bitter providences that have brought you here tonight over many years, it is a wonderful and a frightening thing that God is at work in your life. And God's providence, which brings people to saving faith, does not stop when we become Christians. He continually puts people in our path, us in their path. He grows our faith. He proves our faith through the sweet and the bitter circumstances of our lives. I'm uh, uh, very attracted to William Cowper's hymn, as you know. I think it just gets real life. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You stick your foot in the sea. After an instant, it's gone. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. In other words, don't judge God by how you feel. Trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I would rewrite these last two lines. Behind a frowning providence, he works his saving grace. These uh, chapters also teach us about the experience of true saving faith, what it means to become a Christian. God brought these brothers to a deep conviction of their sin. And this is what it is to become a Christian. And let me just impress this on all our hearts for our assurance or for our conviction. This must happen to you. God brought them to a point where they were weighed down with their guilt. Sinful people before a holy God found out, undone. It took a long time to convince them, and when an individual comes under conviction of sin, they know. What do we see in these chapters? Fear of the Lord, anguished, heart-searching, desperation. And yet under conviction of sin, they were moved to repent. They wanted to turn back to God. You know, when you're under conviction of sin and you are moved to repent, you want to turn back to God. What they thought is what we feel. There is no way back. That's what you feel. They would love to have changed the past. Remember that hymn of McChain? Free grace awoke me. They had no expectation of forgiveness. Conviction, but repentance must come. Real repentance. Turning. 
and then forgiveness. Joseph makes himself known to them and forgives them. The one they wronged forgives them. And that is how it is with us and Jesus. Jesus forgives us the ones we have wronged. Jesus forgives us. And you're not a Christian unless you have experienced true saving faith. You must experience conviction of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. Do not fall ever for a cheap version of the gospel without conviction of sin, without repentance, for you will never, ever come near to the reservoirs of grace that are there for the repentant sinner. But I need not say to you, do not fall for that, because the Lord Jesus will never let you fall for anything less than full forgiveness. And if it takes him 20 years, or 30 years, or 40 years, or bitter providences, or bitter providences, he will throw anything at you if that's what it will take in the end to save you. That sounds, that sounds like a, a sovereign, holy, omnipotent God that is far more concerned for eternity than our 70 years on this earth. Has that been your experience? Are you saved? Why does Joseph test them again and again? Why does he hold back his loving embrace? Why is he seemingly so reluctant to reveal himself to them? Because real conviction and repentance are necessary for salvation. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is always on offer. It is freely given to those who will receive it by faith. But faith is not a lifestyle decision. It is a deep conviction of sin, a repentant heart, and a reaching out to Jesus. And once our sins are forgiven, they are forgiven, past, present, and future sin, but we are transformed by the Spirit of Jesus in the Christian life. The Lord still convicts us of sin and leads us to repentance. Think of it like this, an area of sin you are just not making much progress with in your life as a Christian, and there are such sins in my life. And God will just not let you alone. He will not give you a day's rest in your conscience. Why? To prove a point? Or to help you mortify, kill that sin so he can use you? Finally, these chapters teach us about the nature of God, his severity, his consistency, his patience, his mercy and grace. He is relentless in pursuit of your soul. He is seeking you. He is arranging the circumstances of your life to save you. And when you come to him convicted of your sin and in genuine repentance, his tender affection and loving embrace. Now, this chapter is about the sovereignty of God, the fear of the Lord. 
the, the kingship of God. And yet when he reveals himself to them, what does Joseph do? He muzzles his head into Benjamin's neck. So let's dispense with any view that in our evangelical church world there is no intimacy and personal closeness with Jesus. When someone becomes a Christian, the tears flow and the embrace happens. So where are you? Where are you? Are you in chapter 38 with Judah in chaos? Well, God is with you in some way that I cannot understand. Are you in chapter 42 being drawn to Jesus, conscious of your need of forgiveness? Or chapter 43, wondering what God is doing in your life? Why is he convicting you of sin? Why is he showing you kindness? Why is it when you come to church on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning, you think, he's speaking to me, and you put your head down? Why? Are you in chapter 44, deeply convicted, repentant, falling before Jesus, seeking his forgiveness? Or are we in chapter 45, when Jesus can no longer withhold his blessing from us? And he says to us, he sits down beside us almost, and he says, look, you're forgiven. Don't be afraid. And he muzzles his head under our neck. And he says, I'll never, ever, ever leave you nor forsake you. That's the gospel. And there is no other. And that's a gospel worth having. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these marvelous chapters in your word that teach us what it truly means to be saved. And Lord, we don't want to clutter up your words to us and the application of them by your Spirit. And our prayer is simply this, that the amazing grace of the gospel would steal upon every sinner in this room and that you would open our eyes to trust in Jesus, the beautiful Savior. And we pray that for his sake and in his name. Amen.